He was just a little boy, always adamant about getting to church, getting to Sunday school, just being there every time the door opened. But this one particular Palm Sunday, he woke up and wasn't feeling too well. So he stayed home from church that day with his mom. A couple hours later, his father returned from church, and he's holding a palm branch. Little boy's kind of curious. He said, why do you have that palm branch, Daddy? Well, you see, son, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, and so we got some palm branches today. The little boy replied, well, wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I miss church, Jesus shows up. <laughs> I'm going to refer you, if you're following in your Bible or your Bible app, to uh, two uh, portions of Scripture, one particular that I'm going to be zeroing in on, and that's Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> and we're going to begin to read down at verse 28 in just a moment. And the other is found in Matthew chapter 21, two account, two renderings of the same experience, the same account. But just uh, if you would like to reference those and have them in your notes, it would be great. Let's just pause and ask God's leading. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sweet Holy Spirit being in this place today. Thank you for as we open your, the uh, encouragement that we feel already. And thank you that we know that as we open your word that the blessings of God will be upon us. Lord, may they be in us. May they change us. May they make us open to whatever you have for us. Certainly that's the message of the moment, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading is going to be from... Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, and I want to read uh, verses 28 to 41, and you can follow along, um, or you can read with me, or you can just take it in, just soak in all the goodness here. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. In Matthew it says, You will find a donkey and her, and her foal, or and her colt, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their uh, cloaks on the, on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. So this scripture is the beginning of one of the most momentous weeks in antiquity. It stands, indeed, as one of the most important weeks in all of history. By now, you and I know the story. We know it so well that even as a preacher today, i got to stand before you and say it's hard to find something new to say or something that you haven't heard of before or maybe something that you haven't thought of before. But God has led me to explain the full meaning of this dynamic scene and there's something that's been left out of our telling and I'm here to present it to you today. I would like to ask you a question. As we look further into this, the unfolding events of these several days, here's the question. Why do you think that in the space of one short week, Jesus could go from being the most popular person on the planet to public enemy number one. That's a great title for a message, actually. Now, the key, I hope you're note-taking, the key to the answer to the question, I believe, can be found. Are you ready? Are you ready? Ready? Yes. With the ownership of the donkey. Verse 33 of that Luke 19 passage says, As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? I'm going to explain that in more detail in just a little bit. So stay with me. Hang tight. Get your seatbelt fastened. And here we go. Let me start with the background. Let me give you the political situation in Jerusalem at the beginning of the fourth decade of the first century A.D. The Jews had been waiting a long, 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 did I say long? Long time for a Messiah. They had in their minds what he would look like, how he would come, how he would present himself to them, the, the household of God, and all the rest of it. It would be someone who would free them, finally, free them from the oppression of a foreign ruler. See, they look back in history a couple hundred years, around 167 uh, B.C. That's the time when Judas Maccabees threw off the yoke of the Seleucid kings of Syria, and he reclaimed Jewish independence. I know all of you remember that from history. For the Jews, that was the type of Messiah they were expecting at the beginning of what we now call Holy Week or Passion Week. However, in Holy Week, Jesus did everything 
to dispel their illusions. And let me tell you, they were operating under illusion. So let's ask the question another way, for it begs an answer, and we mustn't leave it. So I ask it this way. Why did the crowd change? There's that big C word. Why did the crowd change in one short week from worshiping Jesus to baying for his blood? I would like to suggest to you that it is because Jesus brought unacceptable change to their thinking. I believe that so much that I'm going to repeat it because I believe every ear under the sound of my voice needs this. I'm going to suggest to you that it's because Jesus brought unacceptable change to their thinking. He challenged their concept, long held for centuries, of the Messiah. And as with any change, are you still with me? The religious people, you know, the churchy kind, didn't like that one bit. Period. There's the problem. In fact, if the crowds had been watching carefully, if they'd have been paying attention, if they'd have been truly listening, if they'd have been really hanging on every word and every action of Jesus in those days, they would have realized that even on this long-awaited, much-anticipated day itself, something just was not quite right. Why? Well, because if Jesus was coming as an all-conquering king... He wouldn't have chosen to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Instead, had he come as a political messiah and the one to free them from all oppression, he would have ridden into Jerusalem on a white stallion, the symbol of power and royal authority. But he came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Hear me very carefully the symbol of servanthood and peace. You may recall from earlier, just moments ago, I said the key to understanding why the crowds turned on Jesus would lay in the ownership of the donkey. So now let me explain why I think that and why I'm going to present that to you. First of all, that donkey was planned. Friends, I believe that Jesus had purposely planned on riding a donkey into Jerusalem and that that was the donkey and that was no mere chance or happenstance. God doesn't work that way. So why do I think that? Well, consider the instructions of Jesus. Yeah. See, the evidence starts with Jesus' instructions to his disciples. And I'd like to read them to you. He tells his disciples in verses 30 and 31 these very words. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it 
and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Clearly, you see, the disciples didn't know the donkey's owners. Otherwise, Jesus could have simply said, go into such and such a town, go to such and such a house, and go to the, 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 the uh, stall of such and such an owner, and he would call that person by name, and there they would go, and that would be all set. You can check it in the other gospel records too, but there's no mention of any of that happening. Luke then records its owners. Ask them, why are you untying the colt? So Luke, the physician, the disciple of detail, he notes something ultra-important. And here's what he noted. Owners. O-W-N-E-R-S. That's right. Plural owners. This is extremely important. And by the way, not uncommon in those days. Because if the donkey had at least two owners, you can be sure that both of them were poor. Simple, ordinary people. Didn't have much of this world's goods. The donkey didn't belong to some one rich landowner with lots of livestock and lots of land and lots of buildings. And that donkey was just one of many. Nope. To the donkey's owners, it would have had to be, I believe, <coughs> excuse me, please. It would have been a sizable investment for each of them. So, why would the owners agreeably have parted with such an investment? I mean, I mean to complete strangers, the disciples of Jesus. Why? Well, the only reasonable explanation is that expre expression, the Lord needs it. You know, that was a prearranged code word in the minds of a lot of the people. God had prepared their hearts. Something great was going to happen. Something they'd never seen and something they'd been looking forward to. The Lord needs it. And if this is so, Jesus has put a lot of meticulous planning into riding that donkey into Jerusalem. So now you sincerely ask, and rightly so, what was Jesus saying then by using a donkey? If Jesus had planned the event, what's the point? If he already knew what was going to happen, what, is he, what point is he making? What message is he, is he trying to share by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Boy, you have good questions, and that was a real good one. Well, you see, you have to remember that Jesus is very well versed in the Scripture, in the Torah, in the Old Testament Jewish writings. And he would have been well aware of Zechariah's prophecy, by the way, that was given 400 years earlier, <laughs> that said that one day the true king would come, not on a royal charger, but on a donkey. Here's what the prophecy reads, if you're note-taking, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Another, um, another version of scripture says, victorious and gentle and lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. But still, the crowds could not hear the statement that Jesus was making with his every move when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Why? Well, they were too caught up in their own preconceptions of the Messiah and what Messiah meant to them. They had it in their minds what it would look like, what it would sound like, what it would feel like, who would be there, who wouldn't be there, and exactly how this great Messiah would be welcomed. They weren't at all, for one moment, listening to the change in their thinking of Messiahship that Jesus was trying to make, indeed was making. For you see, the, the donkey reflected the servanthood of the Messiah. And by the way, that is so beautifully encapsulated just, just, just so well, in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm, I'm not going to turn to it right now, but I'm going to make that your... Everybody has a homework assignment for the Passion Week. Take time to read Isaiah 53. Make note of that. Make note of that. Where you will hear and see and envision Jesus riding into Jerusalem... And you can understand why they were expecting an air of great and very jubilant expectation. But you read Isaiah 53 and you see exactly what he went through and exactly what he was doing. And in all that doing that you read in Isaiah 53, it's to prepare these people for some great change. First off, a change of thinking about who the Messiah is, what the Messiah will do, and to whom he is coming. But I got to tell you, the crowds just weren't up for it. Well, you know, we celebrate the crowds. A lot of people do on this day each calendar year. Like they were really into it. And they really knew what was going on. And they were really cheering. And it was rah, rah, yay, Jesus. But you know, the crowds were simply waiting for Jesus to give the word. And as soon as he would give it, they would rise up and storm the Roman garrison. But he didn't. And they didn't. Instead, if you go down to verse 45 and read verses 45 and 46 in Luke 19, here's what Luke records. Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, instead of leading a revolt to throw out the Roman secular power, Jesus goes into the temple to clean up shop there. Wow. Wow. Why? Because he came to change their expectation of what Messiah meant who Messiah was, and what Messiah would do. 
He attacked the corruption in the temple. You see, God's people need to be reformed first before those who have no allegiance to God. In our day and age, a couple thousand years later, this still bears repeating. I don't know how many pulpits are repeating it today, but God's people need to be reformed first before those who have no allegiance to God. I have people say to me from time to time, wouldn't it be great if we just started praying for revival in our land and in our nation and in our world? Yes, it would. You know, revival comes from two Latin words, re, again, obviously, and viva, life. So life, again. So revival starts at the house of God. It starts with those who call themselves the children of God. And Jesus is in the temple, and God's people needed to be reformed first because the others had no allegiance to him and no right to call him their Messiah. He took the Jews, not the Romans, the Jews, to task for their unbelief. And instead of listening to the change that he brought, instead of listening to this new way of thinking, Instead of seeing Jesus, the one and true Messiah, for who he was and what he was there for, what did they do? They turned on him. Less than one week from jubilation to turning on him. And when what Jesus was saying finally sank in, it was a little late then, wasn't it? The religious Jews, hear me, the religious Jews, the churchy folks, rose up in fury and blazing indignation. And just a few days later, this is interesting to me, they cried for Barabbas to be released and what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Crucify him! Let me explain that to you. That scenario is not because they loved Barabbas. That was because, like many people today, they hated the truth. Hmm. It was when he went into the temple. Wow. They realized or began to how different his mission was to their expectations. Now as we look at this piece from what was called the triumphal entry day to the hollering and the jeering and the jesting and the crying, crucify him, you and I ought to look deeply today into our own souls, and we ought to look deeply into this word of God, and we ought to look deeply into this, this uh, capsule of time, and we ought to take something away from it. So let's, uh, let's get some takeaways. What do you think the takeaways are for us? We're considering an age-old story of the week that changed the world forever. Did you hear what I said? This was the week 
that changed the world forever. I can stand on the resurrection side of Calvary this morning and say, thank God for that week. Hallelujah. It is the week that changed the world forever. And you know what? If you get a hold of this story like God intends you to get a hold of it and the Holy Spirit brings it home to your heart this morning or through this week, you too will say, thank God for this week that changed the world and changed me forever and forever and forever. Isaiah wrote this so poignantly to the people of God in his day. That was 600 years earlier, Isaiah writing. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we read, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you're notating, that's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Now, church, there's a danger that we, just like the religious Jews, let's not let ourselves off the hook here, we'll, we'll, we'll find ourselves, there's this awful danger of people getting real religious this time of year. And the danger is, that they, we find ourselves opposing God himself if we resist the changes Jesus wants to make in our lives. Well, takeaway number one. Our unchanging God is, paradoxically, a God of change. Jesus' mission rocked the folk religion of the day. It was colossal. And Jesus came to change the mindset of those who called themselves God's chosen people. But the way they reacted clearly showed they were not truly God's chosen people. So let us, see it comes back, always comes back to us, doesn't it? So let us, as God's church, the body of Christ, be careful not to miss the change that the donkey of Christ heralded. And our Savior riding into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey still has phenomenal meaning to every blood-washed saint. Yeah. Let us ride lightly on our traditions. Let us ride lightly on our traditions. Say, why a donkey and not a horse, not a stallion, not a, a charger? Why? Let us ride lightly on our traditions, church, that have no scriptural nor eternal warranty. None. For if we do not, if we do not, this is a solemn warning, we may find ourselves opposing rather than cooperating with the plans that God has for his church right here in this beautiful corner of the globe 
and beyond. What's takeaway number one? Our unchanging God is, paradoxically, a God of change. Takeaway number two is the obedience of the disciples. That's wrapped up in three verbs that I read for you in the passage of Scripture. Find, loose, or untie in another Scripture. Bring. Just those three. Find, loose, bring. I want you to notice how obedient they were immediately. No questions asked. No further instructions or directions. Find, loose, bring. I want you to see how helpful that was to Jesus and how committed these disciples are to his mission. i got to stand here and tell you the truth. I don't think they understood what was going on. I don't think they saw the importance of it or the undercurrent uh, of, of meaning. I don't, I don't believe they did right then. But all the while, here they are serving him. All, they are, all the while, here they are, humble. All the while, here they are, true to Jesus, Oh, my friends, may it be so said of us. So my third takeaway, one of the keys to understanding our relationship to God is understanding that God wants us to obey him, not for his sake, but for ours. Sometimes in our heads we get this idea, well, if I really obey God and I'm good and I don't do bad and I'm, everything's on the up and up and so on, then, uh, then that, God, that really pleases God. And that's really Listen, our obedience to God is not so much for his sake as it is for ours. God loves us, you see. I don't think sometimes we get the... The, the enormity or the immensity of God's love. It, 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 he loves us so much that he wants us to avoid pitfalls. He wants us to avoid the disappointments of this life and the defeats of this life. He knows that when we take on the attitude of Christ, we will be happy, we will be satisfied, and we will be victorious. Our obedience to him is to our great benefit alone. It's for us. It's for our lives today and forever. So I say glory and praise to God Almighty, to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh my, why would those people turn in a matter of five or six days from cheerleading for Jesus, to calling for his blood. Because they totally missed his message. Hopefully, you will not repeat it, nor will I. And so with those thoughts, I want us to just take a few moments of quiet, and then I want to lead you in prayer. I invite you to enter the realm of quiet with me just to do some soul searching. It's a great day for that. As we think of the Passion Week and as we think of all that's coming and we think of all that it means and we think of this fact today that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey 
to show that he indeed was the Messiah and he indeed was the king of peace. And may we accept that in our hearts and in our lives today. And Heavenly Father, during this time of reflection and this time of thinking of the Holy Week, may you give us ears that are willing to hear. Unlike those in Jesus' day, may our ears be open to hear what you are saying to us about who you are and what you do and what you mean. And may we keep that cross of Christ ever before us, realizing we need to crucify our carnal nature and we need to do it more than one time and we need to take on the nature of Christ and we need to have the attitude of Christ. And loving Heavenly Father, may we be willing to embrace the changes. That's what we're so, that we're so much part of this message. Jesus was bringing it in human form, and yet those who claimed to know him and love him and were anticipating his arrival just seemed to ignore it. Oh, God, help us not to ignore the changes that you want to make in our lives. So bless and continue to bless the redeemed among us. And save and rescue the lost among us. If there's anyone here without knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in a real and saving and eternal way. May this be the day they put their faith in Christ to save them and to keep them. Oh God, restore your church. Restore us in power. Restore us in purity. And restore us for your eternal kingdom. And all these wonderful things we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord our Savior. Amen.